we've been um, kind of on a theme, kind of on a roll the last few weeks. And um, two weeks ago, uh, the name of the message was the S word. And uh, some of you weren't here, I'm sure, but the S word stands for submission. <laughs> one of the one of the four letter words that we don't like to talk about, especially in our culture and, and in our time. And um, so we talked about submission, especially as it applies to wives and children and slaves in uh, the epistles of Paul and Peter. There are three major words there that they give on the need to stay in submission. And that is something that has been you know, really difficult, especially for women, to deal with um, for the last 50 years or so since the feminist movement started. And so we wanted to talk about that. How do we put this together in such a way that actually makes sense for our times? Is, is the literal understanding exactly what's supposed to be going on here, or is there something else going on? And we talked about the fact that there were household codes, household codes in the Greco-Roman world that mirrored the, the ancient Semitic world as well, that put the man in charge of the whole household, that included everyone and all of the relationships that were common in ancient households, which were the wife, the children, and the slaves, or the domestic servants. And he was at the head unilaterally and absolutely. And it wasn't fair. It's just the way it was. But here comes Peter and Paul, and they don't challenge that. They don't challenge the system. What they do is they try to balance it. They say, just as the wife should submit to the husband, the slave should submit to the master, the children should submit to the father, so also must the husband, the father, and the master be in mutual submission. So they're trying to balance it. And that's great. That If everybody was in mutual submission, would there be anybody in charge? It's that kind of idea. But the larger question is that we want to ask is, why wasn't the system challenged? Why wasn't there a cry from these early Christians for a social revolution? Now, there are many Bible commentators who see Jesus as a social revolutionary but really, when you, when you get down into the, the nitty-gritty of it, he's not really doing that. What were the reasons that they didn't try to upend the system? We talked about two of them. One of them was because of the persecution that was involved. Paul talks about the present crisis, the fact that the Romans enforced the social codes and the household codes as a mean of keep, means of keeping their empire stable. It would have really brought down the whole might of Rome on them. This, this little nascent you know, f- movement and following. And Paul didn't want that, especially because he's, he and all of the first followers of Jesus thought that he was coming back in their lifetimes. So they thought the time was short and that you needed to be focused on the interior things rather than on the macro exterior things. And so they were trying to just create this balance and hold on to it for as long as they can until Jesus came back. My larger point then was, well, if they weren't trying to change the social system of their time, would they really be trying to change the social system of our time? Because we have fought long and hard and dearly for equal rights among minorities and women and child labor laws and everything that have brought those oppressed people for so long, for millennia, up into a place of equality. Would the New Testament writers, would Jesus be challenging that system? You know? And since 
women, wives, and husbands, and slaves, and masters were always tied together. We have to say that absolutely not. That we need to be smart enough to apply the message to our times, just as they were applied to first century times. And so, hold on to that thought for a second. Because last week, we talked about family ties. And we talked about it in such a way that Jesus is saying that if you are unwilling to let go of the family ties, the identity that you have with your family, then you can't follow me. And the way he puts it is really difficult to swallow. Unless you hate your father, mother, sister, brother, your children, and even your own life, you can't follow me. And if you're not willing to prefer them less, in other words, then you can't follow me. Jesus is all about identity. And the strongest identity in the ancient world, in the first century world, was to family. Absolutely. Family, tribe, clan, nation, that was the primary identity. Their codes had that absolutely sacrosanct. And they were capital offenses to go against any of the relationship and the hierarchy in those relationships because the family was survival. But here's Jesus coming along and saying, okay, I know that that identity is embedded in you deeply. But there is another identity that I am trying to get across to you. And unless you can start to let go of the death grip that you have on your family identity, you're never going to be able to go where I'm trying to show you. You're never going to find the freedom that is available to you in a deeper identity. And that deeper identity for Jesus was the Father himself. Jesus' own expression of identity was that I and the Father are one, is the way he put it. He wanted everyone to be one with him as he was one with the Father because there was no difference between him and the Father. We all needed to become one. That great prayer at John 17 about oneness and unity. But it begins with the willingness to let go of the identity we think we have. We place our identity in the roles that we play. We place our identity in the accomplishments, in our attributes as a person. And we're not willing to let go of that, to prefer less, to loosen our grip, to see what else may be right in front of us. Jesus is saying we can't go any further than that. So we've got submission and we've got identity back to back here. And since Jesus seems to be completely focused so deeply on both of these issues, we have to ask ourselves, is there a relationship between them? Is there somehow a connection? Because why didn't they call for a social revolution? In a sense, it was almost like they were condoning slavery. They were accepting slavery. They were allowing slavery. They were allowing women to be subjugated and abused often in their households. They didn't call for that. They called for balance but they didn't call to upend the system. And I think there's a third reason that is really, really strong in why they didn't do that. It's because Jesus is telling us over and over and over again, there is something that we can learn from submission that we will never learn from dominance. There's something we can learn from being in that submitted position that we can never, ever get when we are fighting for and trying to maintain our dominance. He's telling us to learn submission first in whatever position you occupy. Spend less time trying to change the position you occupy and learn to live in the submission 
in the surrender, if you like that word better. All right? In the connection. And how did we define submission anyway? We defined it as caring about someone else's rights more than your own. Simple. It has nothing to do with being a doormat. It has nothing to do with losing your own identity. In fact, it's just the opposite. What Jesus is saying is if we can learn to live harmoniously, joyfully, celebratorily, is that a word? In this position, we've got something about kingdom that we are not going to get any other way. It is over and over again that Jesus is saying, rather than fight for dominance, learn submission first and thereby find out who you are. This goal of the way of Jesus is to find a truth that will make us free. That truth, he says, is a person. I am the way and the truth. And when we meet that person and we see ourselves reflected in that person, in that truth, we will simultaneously be made free of the fear that creates all the obsessive-compulsive drives that we have And we will also get the first inkling of who we really are. Because our identity is not true unless it's rooted in ultimate reality that we call God. Jesus is trying to lead us there. And he knows that the way that we can do this is to learn submission first. Learn submission. Find out who you are. Let the identity that you start to understand guide the actions that you will take rather than the reverse. See, what do most of us do? We go out and we try to do things that we think are meaningful and then we say that's who we are. The cause becomes who we are. The accomplishment becomes who we are. Jesus is saying, let that go. Find out who you are in silence. Find out who you are in submission and then let that from the inside out guide your actions. It's a whole different way of going about things. you know. But we're always looking for that dominant position. We're always trying to end what we see as oppression on ourselves. And Jesus said, hey, can you learn something first? Can you get comfortable here and then see where that leads you? I had a, a fascinating conversation yesterday. I was meeting a friend and he was telling me about his uh, uh, I think about 35-year-old daughter, early, mid-30s, and she's never been married, and she's now, you know, on the dating scene and trying to date people, and she's having a really hard time, you know, and she said she can't find any guys out there who will step up, that's the way she put it, who will step up, quote-unquote, and by that she meant she couldn't find a guy who could just make a decision. Where do you want to go out tonight? Well, I don't know. Where do you want to go? Well, You know, tell me what you want to do. Well, what do you... It's like there was no backbone. There was no chutzpah there. There was nothing that just said yes. And even though she would be asking and looking for direction, it wouldn't be there. And then when they finally do someplace and go out, he said, the guy will never pay. You know, it's always Dutch treat. And And hold the door, pull the chair out, any of those things. And although she didn't say it this way, her father that I was talking to said... You know, she was looking for someone to actually court her, and she couldn't find it. I mean, that was so interesting. I mean, you know, I haven't been on the dating scene forever. You know, thank you, Marion. <laughs> and even if I was, I was on the other side of the table, right? But, you know, the way we grew up, yes, of course the man paid. Of course the man held the door open and did all these things. But 
Think about what's happened in the last 50 years with the feminist movement and, and political correctness and everything. It's like, you know, the pendulum's over here in an obsessive position or an abusive position. And so we realize it has to be pulled back. But you know, that sweet balanced spot in the middle, it's just a momentary blip as that thing swings on through to the extreme on the other side. <laughs> it reminds me of this. This is well, totally off. But there's a movie where, where the heroine is trying to convince the pirate, you know, that he's a really good guy. She says, I know you're a really good guy, you know. And there's going to be a moment where you can show it and do the right thing. And the villain, the pirate, says, I love those moments. I like to wave at them as they go by. <laughs> That's kind of what the pendulum is doing. Here's our sweet spot. Here's the balance place. Here's where we really want to be. And that sucker just rolls right on through to be just as unbalanced on the other side of things. So here's a poor young woman who can't find a guy who can even make a friggin' decision, you know, and then he won't pay for her. He won't envelop her or cover her or do any of the things that she really wants to find in a mate. You know, I guess it kind of comes under the heading of be careful what you wish for, you know, because it may not look the way, but we have raised several generations of, of men now, and women too, with this confusion, or maybe just a lack of training on, on what the roles are, or how they work, or, or social conventions of any sort. And so, once again, I think what... Jesus is trying to get across to us is that life will give us the perfect environment for growing what we need in our lives. Wherever we are born into by accident or whatever changing circumstances we live through, it's like a Petri dish. You know that that gel that's there that is the perfect nutrient for the culture? It's like life is a Petri dish. Right now, you guys, we're all laying in a Petri dish. And, and it's giving us all the right ingredients, the right amount of pain and the right amount of, of, of joy and pleasure, the right amount of being in a dominant position and then an oppressive position. All of these things are part and parcel if we will lay in the dish and not be trying so hard to change the gel to our liking that we don't learn what it is we need to learn at this particular moment. That doesn't mean that rights don't that we don't look to right the wrongs that are there, that we don't try to, to change the abuse and the injustice we see. But I'll tell you what, every one of us is going to have a boss all our lives. There's never going to be a moment that you don't have a boss of some sort. I don't care who you are. President of the United States, he's still got a boss. It's us. You know, we don't boss him around much, but you know. There it is. And everybody answers to someone. Everyone has. And as soon as you move into a relationship, you are handing over a lot of your freedom and independence voluntarily because that's the way relationships are supposed to work. And so every one of us is going to be in some kind of subservient position to somebody all the time, always. Can we learn to love that? Can we learn to thrive in that? Can we learn to be the person who is willing to serve and give in that? That's what Jesus, I think, is trying to get at. And notice when Jesus teaches, and when Paul, well, Paul's a little bit theoretical at times, 
But, but Peter is certainly very simple as well. But even Paul, he gets back down out of the clouds and into the weeds. But Jesus especially, when he teaches, it's not a lot of abstract, esoteric, theological principles that are really highfalutin. He gets right down into the everyday experience of life. What does he talk about? He talks about the basic relationships in the household that everyone is experiencing and struggling through every single day of their lives. Husbands and wives and parents and children and masters and slaves. He's talking about just eating meals together. He's talking about what happens when you walk from one place to another. All those basic things of life are what are being discussed. Because if we can't see the principle there in the daily details of life, how in the world are we going to apply them? Even if we think we have a concept, an abstract concept in mind, if we don't see how it works there, and if we aren't exercising it there, in the most basic and, and intimate relationships of our lives, then how in the world is it that we're following anything anyway? Jesus is trying to get us plugged in at the ground level. And so what we've also been doing in here the last few weeks is weaving in certain passages from the prophet by Khalil Gibran. And we read one last Wednesday, this is on our book study, on just eating and drinking. And it's like, well... Eating and drinking, what could that possibly have to offer a discussion like this? But think about eating and drinking. Think about food for just a moment. How often do you think about food, for one thing? You know, think about it. Food, eating, drinking is the centerpiece of life. Isn't it? All our cultures are built around food, and they always have been. What's the main room in the house when you have people over. It's the kitchen. Everybody goes to the kitchen. You can set up tables and chairs everywhere you want, but they're going to end up in the kitchen because that's where the food is. (laughs) We gather around food. We relate around food. Food, every culture is built from the food up. You know, we have to eat every single day. If we're fortunate, we get to eat every single day. And so, To start right there at something that is so central, so ground level in our lives, and see if there's a principle there that we can use to to, to further this concept, that would be a really good thing for us to do. So let's take a little read, shall we? If you have your inserts, you can read along. Otherwise, just kind of close your eyes and listen. If you're not familiar with the prophet... It is a book of 26 prose poems that are just little, I would like to say an essay, but they're really poems about all these different uh, parts of life uh, from a very wise man. And, you know, he starts talking about love and then marriage and then children. And, and he talks about eating and drinking just in that first part. All the same basic relationships and parts of life that Jesus uses to get his message across as well. And so an old man, a keeper of an inn, says to the prophet, Speak to us of eating and drinking. And the prophet said, Would that you could live on the fragrance of the earth, like an air plant, be sustained by the light. But since you must kill to eat and rob the newly born of its mother's milk to quench your thirst, then let it be an act of worship. And let your board stand an altar on which the pure and the innocent of forest and plain are sacrificed for that which is purer and still more innocent in man. 
When you kill a beast, say to him in your heart, by the same power that slays you, I too am slain, and I too shall be consumed. For the law that delivered you into my hand shall deliver me into a mightier hand. Your blood and my blood is not but the sap that feeds the tree of heaven. And when you crush an apple with your teeth, say to it in your heart, your seeds shall live in my body, and the buds of your tomorrow shall blossom in my heart, and your fragrance shall be my breath, and together we shall rejoice through all the seasons. And in the autumn, when you gather the grapes of your vineyards for the winepress, say in your heart, I too am a vineyard, and my fruit shall be gathered for the winepress. And like new wine, I shall be kept in eternal vessels. And in winter, when you draw the wine, let there be in your heart a song for each cup, and let there be in the song a remembrance for the autumn days, and for the vineyard, and for the winepress." He makes his point in the first stanza, and the rest is beautiful illustrations. But the first point, in fact, I think there are two points to look at in that first stanza. What's the first point? We all must kill to eat. Everything in life, you know, the circle of life, has to consume in order to survive. But all animals on the earth must consume organic matter, which means... It has to be coming out of someone else's hide. That's the only way that we can survive. Even if it's plants or if it's animals, we have to kill to eat. Every living thing has to do this. But see, we in the modern world have done a really good job at trying to isolate and insulate ourselves from the earth itself, from this, this cycle, from this circle. We wear rubber-soled shoes. We're Electric, electrically ungrounded from the earth as we walk through. You know, how often anymore do you walk barefooted in the dirt, in the grass, in the sand? Some of you do. Most of us are walking on rubber-soled shoes, moving from one air-conditioned compartment to another, from the car to the office to the home. You know, we 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 stay in this sort of cloistered existence, and we never really move just into life again. More and more so, we find ourselves absolutely isolated. Our food is little neat cubes under cellophane wrapping in the store. It doesn't look anything like where it came from. In fact, we think it's gross if it looks. I remember one time we went for sushi and they gave us those shrimp that still had the heads on and the eyeballs and the little antenna. And everybody's going, oh, it's gross. That's what we're eating, you know? If it's a nice little fillet that you can't tell what it looked like when it was swimming around, is that somehow easier for us? Yeah. But we have done this good job of moving ourselves back to try to stay above the processes of the earth and everything that is alive in it, at least mentally, abstractly. But it's there, and we're a part of it. And so this is the point that he's trying to make. We are all part of this cycle. It would be nice if we didn't have to, but we're part of the cycle. And so if we're going to kill to eat, how do we do it? On a physical level, what we're really trying to avoid is that we are just like every other animal on this planet. On a physical level, we are part of the circle of life. We can be eaten, we eat, we do what we do. 
But we don't like that position. We're trying to move ourselves away from it, trying to pretend that we are above the earth somehow. But we are just as interdependent and just as connected to the earth and all the processes. And that's a really humbling thought, isn't it? It makes us vulnerable to the realities of life. It takes things out of our control. But each meal that we eat can be a reminder of who we really are, of what these relationships are really like, if we will just let them be. And since this is true, the second point that he's making is that since we do have to eat in this way, since we do have to kill for for eating, let's let this be an act of worship. Okay, worship. Isn't that the songs we just sang in here this morning? Isn't How is this worship as well? And this is what we need to define a little bit. We need to talk about worship. We need to expand this idea of worship. How could eating and drinking be an act of worship? What does worship mean, anyway? Have you really thought about it? We use it all the time. We say we're doing it all the time. If you had to define it, could you? How would you define it? Anyone want to throw anything out here? Praise to God. Adoration. Concentrating on God through song, thoughts, whatever, prayer, yeah? Meditation. Meditation. Connection. All these are really good, right? I remember as a kid growing up Catholic, you know, and reading the Baltimore Catechism, and it's just like, you know, why are we here? We're here to glorify God. That's another word that we could have used. What is worship? Giving glory to God. Which is adoration, which is praise, and some of the other things that you all said. I used to wonder as a kid, why do I have to run around telling God how good he is all the time? You know, is he really that insecure? Does he need that kind of reinforcement from me all the time? What's going on here? If glory were just telling God how good he is all the time, like those little minions in that one cartoon, then it loses all of its efficacy. It loses all the power of what worship really is. Giving glory really is reflecting the person that you're giving the glory to, reflecting who they are. We glorify God when we reflect his attributes, when we reflect his essence, when we live as he lives and love as he loves, relate as he relates. When we give ourselves over to that life, that is giving glory to God. And that is also worship. Worship is reflecting God in everything that we do, not just in the times that we set aside ritualistically, you know, but just in everything that we do. Can eating and drinking be a form of worship? Absolutely. When we are calling to mind this reverence for all life, even as we acknowledge that this had to be killed, that this animal, this plant had to die in order for us to survive, can we have that reverence for life? Can we call to mind again the humbling aspects of being brought back down to earth, to have our toes in the ground again, to realize that, yes, from dust we came and to dust we will return, that we are part of this cycle, grounded in this, that, that this earth is our home in a way that is much more visceral, much more real than we usually ever give any thought to. Can each meal be a remembrance of that? Can we, like the Native Americans, when they killed prey on the plains, 
give honor to the spirit of that animal and thank the animal and the great father spirit for their ability to have and be part of this cycle. Some of you say, well, I say grace before a meal. Wonderful. A lot of our grace, though, is about trying to transfer holiness from God to the food. God, bless this meal before I take it into my body, as if it's in some unholy state before we infuse it with God's holiness. Jews are really interesting in the way that they say grace. You know, They would never think about blessing something and making it holy because it already is. God created everything and saw that it was good. It's already good. We don't need to make it good. They say their grace, their blessing, after the meal. And they don't bless the food. They bless God. Well, how do you bless God? Isn't he already blessed? Absolutely. Their idea of blessing, though, is the thanksgiving, the gratitude for being able to partake in the abundance that is here by God's grace. Do you see the difference? However we do it, before, during, after. Is there something in us that every time we sit down to a meal, every time we take a bite, we are reminded that we are part of this beautiful, even though it sometimes looks harsh and cruel, circle and cycle of life. That there is a reason that we are here. To allow ourselves to move back into that subservient position as one of the beautiful animals on this planet but different, but still one of the beautiful animals on this planet. Can we cope with that? Will our ego allow us to be that? Because the third point, or the the second part of the second point that he makes, is that let your board, in other words, let your table, your, your dinner table, be an altar for the sacrifice of these animals, for something that is still purer and more innocent in us. Now, there's some of us who would say, there's nothing more pure or innocent in people than there is in my dog. Right? I mean, we feel that way. And we look at all the little forest creatures. You know, they're all so beautiful, Bambi and all that. And how can we ever, with everything that we do as people and all the things that run through my mind, be more pure and innocent than that? And yet, we know that we are made in God's image. What does that even mean? I think it means that we are made with the ability to choose, to be self-aware enough to be able to choose love. Animals don't do that in the same way. You know, yeah, Lenny always used to tell me, my dogs love me, you know, and you may feel the same way, but there's a difference. And we know that innately, the love of another human being, which is voluntary and by free choice is different than the love of an animal. When Jesus says, be like children if you want to enter the kingdom, you have to convert and be like a child if you ever want to have this experience. The word he uses there in Aramaic is talia. And talia does mean child, but at the same time it means bondservant or domestic slave. He's saying, be like that. That's two of the three relationships in the ancient household, right? That he is comparing the kingdom resident to. Because the child is in submission and in complete dependence and wonder and and in that state because they can't be anything other than what they are. They haven't eaten yet from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They haven't crossed the line into the age of reason. They are who they are by synapse, right? But the slave, there's a choice there. The slave can always choose 
Maybe the choice is just to serve or die, but it's a choice. And when the slave chooses to humble him or herself, when the slave chooses to serve, that adds the element of volition that the child doesn't have. And it's the two concepts together that cement this idea that Jesus is trying to get across. If we are going to enter the kingdom, if we are going to live, then we need to voluntarily choose to live as a child lives, who is always at the bottom of everybody's totem pole, right? There is something about submission. And our meals can help us, if we will allow them, to be one more reminder in our day, taking us to this place. Jesus is always trying to get us to this place. He's trying to tell us, as long as we're fighting for dominance, we will never get what's going on. As long as we think that we have to be in the dominant position in order to be in God's favor, or to prove that we are in God's favor, or that God is calling us to right all these wrongs and these injustices that we see about us, as long as we're doing that, we're missing a deeper point. Take a look at what he says at Luke 22. He says to them, his disciples, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And then look what he says at John 13. Complete follow-on to that. So when he had washed their feet and taken their gar- he took and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, "Do you know what I have done to you?" He just washed their feet. Do you know what I've done to you? Do you get the significance of what has just happened? Yeah, I know you are all shocked that I would first strip down and then do this to this this abject act to you. But do you know what it means? Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then the Lord and teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. You see where he's going with this? He's taking everything we think we know about dominance and subservience and about the hierarchy of life, and he's turning it upside down. And he's trying to tell us, if you really want to go where I'm going, can you get comfortable in that position? Can you care more about the rights of others, the needs of others, the well-being of others, than you do about yourself and live in that direction? For as long as you are fighting for rights, for dominance, trying to insulate yourself from the humbling realities of your life, you'll never know who you are. We will never know who we are. Insulated from that position, close to the dirt, close to the earth, keeping ourselves separate from who we are by everything that we're trying to do to find out who we are is one of the greatest ironies of life. But if we can allow the roles and realities of life as we experience them every day to teach us by flowing with them, by allowing them to be, by acknowledging that, yes, we are in subservient roles all the time, 
And something changes in us. Something deep starts to shift. And we begin to see life through our Father's eyes. And the view changes and everything changes. If we're fortunate, we eat every single day. If we're really fortunate, we eat three times a day. That's three opportunities a day. That's over a thousand opportunities a year to be reminded, to bring remembrance. Jesus says, take this and eat. And when you do, remember, remember me. Remember who you are in me because you know who I am and how I serve. These are opportunities every day, like prayer time, to come back to ground, to be reminded and to celebrate our place in life and know who we are for the first time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our food. Thank you for our sustenance. Thank you for everything that you continue to shower on us every moment of every day. There is so much that you do in the background that we never see that keeps all the planets spinning in space, keeps night separated from day, and keeps the water running in our faucets. Everything ultimately is coming from you, from the source of it all. Help us more and more to see that relationship, to see that inner working of how everything connects and everything is here to help us to see with your eyes what's really going on and who we really are. Father, we want to remember our heritage. We want to remember who we are. Help us to see the significance in being in submission in the best of that word's meaning to everyone we meet so that we can practice and practice and practice just being who we are, close to you, reflecting you, giving you glory, and worshiping in spirit and truth. Thank you, Lord, for this gift. Thank you for your love. Thank you for never letting us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, let's stand up.